It's the Nerdlings Podcast, number 438, and for the education critique and all that other, you know, free stuff or whatever. It's the Nerdlings Podcast. <laughs> I'm WC Chronicles. You can call me Wayne, and we're doing number 438, and I'm going to let the other guy introduce it, who's not our fitter, who is not artificial intelligence. Oh, as far as I know, I'm not artificial intelligence. <laughs> That's literally a scene in Loki. Like, how many people don't know they're a robot? That's it's one of my favorite things. Anyway, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it did involve a British guy. So yeah, um, we decided in all of Wayne's uh, endless enthusiasm here that we were going to do a James Bond themed podcast because No Time to Die is coming out in a few days in the United States. It's already out in the UK. Uh, and it's been getting great reviews, which is excellent. That, that makes me so happy as a Bond fan. There's nothing worse than being a kid watching Die Another Day and being extremely disappointed by that. You are like the best Bond. You're the the, the, the go-to Bond brain. <laughs> well, one of my friends, Matt Sherman, who's a James Bond organizer, he's he's organized uh, fan conventions, and now he's gonna he's been organizing this cruise ship in the Caribbean. All right, hold it. I'm gonna yes. interrupt there. Let's play. Let's let's play some music, and then we'll tell our stories as we go along. How does okay, that sound? that's fair enough. Okay, um, <laughs> I'm gonna let you. Your first cut, first song that you're picking here. Oh, okay. For the podcast. I was trying to transition to that, dude. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I'm no no offense. I know that, but sometimes you have a tendency to just keep on going. You don't breathe. You're a robot. Oh, okay. So I am a robot. All right. I will prove <laughs> I am human. All right. So what I was trying to say was Matt Sherman was an organizer. And he or he is one of the top Bond fans in the world. And he once said that he thinks that I am the number three guy in the entire world of Bond knowledge. So that's what I was trying to say. Oh. So, <laughs> well, in my world, you're number one. So there. Oh, thank you. That, that's actually, I, I appreciate that. Okay, so the first thing we have queued up, because we love doing uh, clips for examples, <laughs> is uh, we're going over Bond songs. And this song is interesting because it's not a Bond song that plays in the title sequence of the sixth Bond film on Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's actually in the middle of the movie during a sequence when George Lazenby as James Bond and Diana Rigg as Tracy DiVincenzo are dating. So it's during a montage, kind of like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, except not Bart Baccarat. It's Louis Armstrong. And this was the last song he professionally recorded ever. Because he ended up dying a few years later, unfortunately. He was kind of sick by the time they recorded the song in the studio. So he sang a very beautiful love song that was a little ironic to his life. We have all the time in the world. But it's obvious that he wanted to do this song because it's one of his most popular and lovely songs. Let's play it. Yeah, for sure. What year is this from? 1969. 1969. Of the way will 
find us with the cares of the world far behind us. We have all the time in the world just for now. Nothing more, nothing less Oh, from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, I think the editor put in together the clips of uh, later in the film for that just to keep the whole song uh, intact. But yeah, no, it's a song that's in the film. It's uh, basically interesting that uh, because the movie On Her Majesty's Secret Service had that title, John Barry couldn't figure out a song for that because it's like, how do you sing that title? So he just did an orchestral score at the beginning of that movie, kind of like Dr. No has an orchestral score and the original Casino Real has an orchestral score. But the song We Have All the Time in the World is in the middle of the movie during a montage uh, where Bond and Tracy are going on dates because they decided to humanize the character, make him like a real guy who's just going on dates, which was really nice. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, my approach on the whole James Bond thing is I'm not a brain trust like you are. <laughs> I kind of, because, you know, I love when you cross universes and franchises. So I decided to investigate the Elvis Presley James Bond universes coming together. Okay? Which I've never heard of because it's not an official thing, but I'm very yeah, fascinated. Yeah, because there, there are some, actually, from what I understand, it's going to require some extra digging, but I don't know if I'm going to do that or not. So this goes back from to the, the, the 2015 Bond movie, Scepter. Spectre. Scepter. Spectre. <laughs> I just do this automatically. No, Sorry. you do. He does that with names all the time, guys, so don't worry about Spectre. it. Spectre. Yes. Spectre, okay? So it was a song from, the song is Surrender, okay? 
and what yes, the, yeah, Katie Lang's surrender, yeah, yeah. I quote El, this, not, this is not to be confused with the Elvis fictional character in the movie from the two thousand eight, played by Dominic Green from the from the film Quantum of Solace. Mm-hmm. Did I say that right? <laughs> uh, Solace. Uh, Solace. Solace. There, there, no, there is a henchman named Elvis. Yeah. Okay. All right. And he he works for Dominic. Green. Okay. Yeah. Well, Close that, enough. That that has nothing to do with this. Okay. But so they find they they took the fan the I, I don't think this is a fan movie I think this because you know how sometimes they'll do a soundtrack from the movie yeah and then they'll put out like maybe a few weeks later they'll put out more of or music inspired by the movie of or something I think that's where this got put into the the soundtrack of the mixes for Spectre okay so this is Surrender. By Elvis, recorded on it was recorded October thirtieth, nineteen sixty. Released February seventh, nineteen sixty one. It did go number one in the U.S. and U.K. in top ten in shut up in <laughs> eight European countries. So this is kind of a fan mix. We're gonna put all these links in the videos down below so you can see them. And what's interesting about this song is you can get all the takes that they did one through six on different bonus tracks. So this is surrender. My heart's on fire Burning with a strange desire And I know it's time I kiss you But your heart's on the fire too So my darling please surrender So there you have it. That is from a mix made by Teddy. <laughs> it says at the end, by Teddy. There. Video maker, myself, Teddy. Links in the description. So what is your impression of that? Um, no, I can see what you mean by this. It's basically Elvis music that could inspire, have inspired later John Barry and, uh, you know, all the other various songwriters. 
uh, music for Bond. Yeah. Because it does sound very Bond. It has kind of a slight rock infused with jazz quality it's to got it. That, it's got that orchestra backing, strings. That are yeah, right no, there. a really good orchestral uh, backing that kind of makes the film sound a lot more stereophonic and yeah. has it more of a budget. Production value, that's the thing about, you know, Bond films. They're not supposed to be lazy. They're they're full of production value where you're just like, wow, look yeah. at all this effort they put into this. Yeah. I was going to do a deeper dive on it, I'll tell you honestly, but I wanted to check out the vinyl or what was available. Didn't have it to it. Might do it in the future. I don't know. You're up next. Okay, so uh, because your whole theme is Elvis, right? That's what you're basically going on. Is my whole thing is Elvis? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Elvis yeah, yeah. into James Bond. That's fine is... because that that's kind of like almost the uh, the the beta version, the prequel to what became an actual James Bond song. Kind of like what you're saying. Like this is what inspired this. This is funny because this is a cover song. Because I wanted to show this because I feel I feel like this guy should get more views on YouTube because he made this during the COVID pandemic. So he was somewhere in Italy just doing this with all his gear. So this guy <laughs> clearly knew how to duplicate almost exactly the Simon Le Bon sound of Duran Duran for Ooh. A View to a Kill because he sounds like Simon. And then he, he duplicated not only all the instrumentation, but like he had the gear to create that sound in his own room, in his, like, bedroom. It's amazing. So I'll right. just let it play for itself, and you just, yeah. everybody listen to I'm, it. I'm, I'm just looking at the date, the upload date, January 21st, 2020. Right yeah. in the middle of the pandemic. Right in the <laughs> pandemic, this guy got bored and decided, I'm going to do my version of A Vito Kill, and it's going to sound very much like, it's almost exactly like the original 1985 song. Let's do it. <laughs>
So that is as you as I mentioned, and you, you said he's from Italy. He's Italian. I okay, looked him yeah. up. Yeah, very good. And I mean, it's almost direct. It's like a carbon copy of the actual Duran Duran track. Yeah, there's a, there's subtle differences. Like I th like the subtlest difference is that the song version you are listening to sounds more like the music video, but the movie version in the title sequence has more John Barry like strings and like trumpets and, you know, brass in general. Yeah. So there's more of like that dun -dun 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 kind of sound to it yeah. from like Goldfinger, and that's, but that's no, okay. That's okay. He doesn't have that gear. He doesn't have a full orchestra and he's not going to duplicate it with like finale in his, in his computer. He's trying to duplicate like what, it, what appears to be from what I can tell in the montage, complete, authentic 1985 uh, gear. He's yeah. not trying to do anything that's 2020, 2021. He's trying to get that 1985 sound. Yeah. Like to the point that I don't really know how he did the, like, I don't know. He, it's not, there's a, there's like a, you know, a combination of sounds that happens when he hits one key that he programmed into the, into the keyboard. I don't know how he did that, but unless he just kind of took the sound from the movie, I hope he didn't because that would be cheating. But he found it some way, and you know, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he did everything exactly the way he feels that Duran Duran did it back in the 80s. Yeah, he's got all thumbs, 192 thumbs up. Whoever the idiot is, I gave him one down and 5,000 views. <laughs> There's he's, always somebody like that, you know. Uh, his... But, his stepmom. His stepmom. <laughs> I don't know. His Italian stepmom wanted him to cook dinner instead. So anyway, the so yeah, no, it's a really good cover song, and I think more people should listen to it. It's it's good. It's good. Okay, so I got one for my next one. Yeah, what's on the grapevine? I wanted to do because you know I always look for. I, I didn't want to play a one of the six takes or demo recordings from Elvis doing Surrender. But I found this fan-made mix. I think we're into the fan-made mix stuff here. Yeah, transitioned well. This is what it would be in, because he never did perform Surrender live. Okay? But I found this one, and it says it's a fan mix, but the damn thing is, when you listen to it, I think they took the maybe some mumblings or something from the alternate takes that they, he did. But there's these damn, there's this damn like flute recorder or something in the orchestration. It's very different. So I'm just going to play it. Here we go. All this, right. is, this is another rendition of, um, of Surrender, but it's like a live version. Here we go. 
fascinated by the track and i think they put the live audience recordings over this but i just like that flute that's going on in the background on that version. yeah no it's uh, it's interesting because sometimes as a musician you wonder when you hear like say that flute and it's a little bit more uh prominent than other versions for yeah. example you kind of wonder if that's an example of somebody not miking it properly and the flute is too loud because a flute you know is a very loud instrument if you pump a bunch of air into that flute, it can it can overpower. Like a piccolo. A piccolo get a, could get overpower an air everybody. On it. <laughs> air compressor. But like but I mean at the same time if because it's he's it's just accompanying him in the melody. It yeah. just kind of makes you wonder if that is what you're supposed to hear uh as prominent. Or yeah, it's supposed to definitely be there to go along with them. Yeah. It's a good question. I don't know. I I can't tell because I it's not like I'm looking at sheet music and we'll be able to tell, you know, how loud this flute is supposed to be or recorder, how loud it's supposed to be. So give us this give us the long story short of your crew, the James Bond cruise fan thing that you're going on. Okay, okay. So in a few in, in a few days, it's gonna it's gonna be sooner than I expect already. Uh, in October on the 10th, there's a cruise, a carnival cruise, and it's actually going to a number of places in the Caribbean where they did film Bond. The reason why there's a lot of Caribbean locations is that Ian Fleming, the creator of Bond, used to live in Jamaica. His house was called Goldeneye. I don't know why the house had a name, but, you know, he used to live next to Noah, um, Noah Coward, you know, the writer. So basically, they had uh, names for all their houses. So uh, they filmed in Jamaica for Dr. No, because that's where the book took place. But they also filmed 
uh, live and let die in New Orleans, we're, we're, that's where we're leaving port. We're not going to Jamaica, but we're going to the Bahamas. We're going to Nassau and in Freeport, and they filmed Thunderball and Never Snever Again and the new 2006 Daniel Craig Casino Royale in the Bahamas. And then we're also going to uh, Puerto Rico, where they filmed uh, GoldenEye. It was the stand-in for Cuba. And then we're going to uh, Florida, um, Miami, where they filmed License to Kill. And then we're going back to New Orleans. I did hear recently that um, a couple of the stops have been eliminated, Miami, because of hurricane damage. So that's still up in the air. It would be nice to go to Miami and Key West, but, you know, that that's on the mainland and it's a lot easier to visit than, say, the Bahamas. So uh, we're, we're doing that for like a week and a half, and I will be gone, and Matt Sherman, who I mentioned before, was the organizer. And uh, basically, it's, we're going to all these other locations. He's, he's organized uh, guides to go in, like, SUVs, because he's done this in Vegas, where they filmed Diamonds Are Forever. We go in vans, and we go to various locations where they filmed with Sean Connery, uh, and Diamonds Are Forever in 1971. So we're kind of going multiple Bond actors in multiple places in the Caribbean. So with Live and Let Die, we're, we're in Roger Moore's world, then we're going to the Bahamas, that's Sean Connery and Daniel Craig, Puerto Rico is Pierce Brosnan, if we go to Florida, that's Timothy Dalton, and then we're back in Roger Moore's world with Live and Let Die. So we're, going to, we're kind of going in this really weird Bermuda Triangle without going in the Bermuda Triangle. Certified nerd perfect. That is so, awesome. Going so to nerdy. Locations. Yeah. But it's not like but it's not like Carnival made this completely Bond theme. There it's just a Caribbean cruise. It's just a coincidence that it's going to multiple Bond locations. If we were suddenly somewhere in uh the Netherlands the, the Antilles, we would not be in a Bond location. If we went to uh uh, we went to Barbados. We wouldn't be in a bomb location if that was the case, you know. But we, it turns out we're going to places where they filmed Bond. It's such a weird coincidence. That's why Matt picked it. Estimated number of fans who are going on this cruise? hundred uh, thousand? No, not at all. Dozen? Like it's expensive. The guy who, uh, the when Matt organized the Bond convention for Las Vegas, I think we had about fifty. Because he was able to get people to stay at the Luxor, and it was really cheap, and so on and so forth. The Luxor did not exist in Diamonds Are Forever, by the way. But <laughs> but with this cruise, because it, it's around like six hundred dollars, and then you got to pay for like your motel stay before and after, so in your flight and all that stuff like that. You know, this is starting to get up at least in the thousands. So not everybody can afford it, especially during the pandemic if you're having trouble working. Also, very importantly, you can't get on unless you've had a vaccination because you got to have your vaccination card and I have to get tested before I can get on the cruise. Yes. So I have to buy it. I had to buy it like a $75 kit just so I can test myself in my motel so that they would have an accurate uh, conclusion of the test the a weekend before the cruise. So that's really important. I had to say that because it's part of what's important to do these days. So are you going to do what I do when I go to when I go to these locations, when I go to the different places that I want to see? You find something, line something up, and then try to find a souvenir, a rock, a stick, a stone, something. I have taken pictures when we did the, the, bond, uh, the, the bond tour in Vegas, which was a few years ago. I did do that, but I did... I didn't do any like aligning of photos to like the screenshots, but I did do that for Jaws. I did that when I was in Martha's Vineyard at Jaws Fest. It's a totally different story, but I'll say it's really short. When I did Jaws Fest in 2012, I found out that this one shot where Roy Scheider comes up in his um, in his uh, his truck and he goes over to the um, oh gosh, the word is escaping me. Um, but basically, he's going over 
to the, the, the boat that picks up your truck and moves it to the Fairy. other side. Fairy, thank you, thank you, thank you. I was like, Jetty. I'm like, that's not right. Fairy, <laughs> when he's going to the ferry, I realized that the crane shot, when they got the shot, there was a house that was torn down. So it was gone from the modern day shot when I aligned it. And there was a tree that was still there from 1978 in Jaws 2 that was now grown much bigger. It was really cool kind of aligning those, going like, okay, cool. I can get the shot. They were obviously on a crane. There was, there's now a scaffolding there for, like, watching, like, some kind of show. So, basically, I got up to the top of the scaffolding, to the bleachers, I should say, and then was able to line the shot, and I did it perfectly. So, that was one of the examples where I did line a shot. That and the, that and the uh, town hall, the, the, uh, where the mayor is of Edgartown, that's still there. That's exactly the way it was back when they shot it in 75 cool. for Jaws. That's cool. Okay, so what is your next one, next track? Okay, so Billie Eilish. Billie Eilish is the first millennial slash Gen Z, however you want to call it, singer of a Bond song. Billie Eilish. Eilish. I just said <laughs> Eilish. That's why. I, like I'm, eyelash. I'm it doing it on purpose just to be a smart ass. Sure, sure you are. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, she's very popular right now because a lot of people like that, you know, she's very good on social media that's not the important part. But her music with her brother, her brother uh, Phineas and her write music together. And a lot of people have admired that her whole career started basically in their room. They just made music together, and it was very good. They're very talented. And somehow in some place, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson, the producers of the Bond series, it's family-owned. It's a family-run independent film series. A lot of people don't know this. MGM does not have any creative control over Bond. They're just the distributor, uh, which Jeff Bezos just recently bought. And they had to give the fans assurance that Bezos is not going to do anything with Amazon Prime yeah, to force them into streaming. It's not yours, It's not Bezos. yours, Lex Luthor of uh, the That's modern day. That's about it, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people have said that. I'm not the only one. But basically... Uh, she was able to write this song with Hans Zimmer, who's the current composer of the recent Bond film, No Time to Die. And it's actually really good. It's there, You'll hear a little bit of the Bond theme kind of stuck in there as a little bit of like a, like almost a cameo appearance of the Bond theme. Little Easter egg. Little Easter egg. You haven't, they did a little bit of it also in Skyfall, but the funny thing about that was they hadn't stuck a little bit of the Bond theme in a Bond song since Thunderball. So it took that long for it to show, wah, 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 wah for that to show up again. I don't know why that happened, but it just did. So you hear a little bit of, again, in No Time to Die, and it's really lovely. Again, it's her brother and her uh, Billy and Hans Zimmer coming off a Bond song. All right, let's play it, Billy Elish. <laughs> Thank mm -hmm. you. 
much to bear You were my life But life is far away from fair Was I stupid to love you? Was I reckless to help? Was it obvious to everybody else That I fought for a lie You were never on my side Fool me once, fool me twice That's a, a pretty good music video. I'm really excited to watch this uh, new film on the 8th. I know it's already out in England, and I'm trying to avoid any spoilers, but it's just kind of like, oh, this is exciting. I want to know what the imagery in this music video means, because obviously it's part of the story. Assuming it's not cut out, and this was just like extra shots, angles that they didn't get to put in the movie. That happens with trailers sometimes. It's good to hear her singing a little bit more than whispering. I like that. Yeah, no, it's, I a, like that. it's almost like a cocktail lounge song or a yeah. champagne room song torch song oh okay there's another way to look it's not a power ballad like a lot of bond songs yeah. are like paul mccartney live and let die that's a power ballad and it's not necessarily a love song like fear eyes only it's more like what you said it's got kind of a dark bluesy quality to it yeah. that i like so it's different it's a different bond song i like it very much all right so my next one yes is, okay getting back to the elvis into the james bond universe so, now, which James Bond movie is it that would have been, like, 1966 or 67? Uh, you Only Live Twice comes out in 1967. That's Nancy Sinatra singing You Only Live Twice. Okay, okay. So, Elvis went to see that movie. 
Okay. Right? That's the most latest James Bond movie, okay? He was kind of wanting, he was really intrigued by it, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, oh, he did his Elvis comeback special in 1968. There was a song called If I Can Dream, which was like a song, the song that was from the TV series, that show, the comeback special release. But on the B side, there was a song called Edge of Reality. Hmm. The beginning of it is literally like a Bond movie start out, start up, okay? Uh-huh. Being the fact that there was no James Bond project going on at the time, Elvis couldn't do that. But I think it would have been interesting if, I, I think it would be too weird of a universe to see Elvis in as James Bond, okay? Yeah, well, you could, well one, he's American. That's one of the kind of, yeah, the, that's but, kind of the big no-nos. Like, here's a little thing, just a side note, Tad, tad side note, is that when Sean Connery wanted to retire, one of the people, Guy Hamilton, the director, Diamonds Are Forever, before Sean Connery officially signed back, there was a talk about people wanting to see Burt Reynolds as James Bond. Because Burt Reynolds had some kind of weird, charming quality that reminded people of Sean Connery, even though he's totally American. But Cubby completely vetoed that, because he thought, like, there's no way Burt Reynolds is going to be Bond. He just thought that would be like John Wayne being James Bond. It just doesn't work. So eventually it led them to going to Roger Moore because Roger Moore was totally English and they avoided Sean Connery. So that was the thing. There was something about Burt Reynolds that reminded them of Sean. Now, you saying that about Elvis and Sean is interesting because if you watch Dr. No, the very first Bond movie, there's something about Sean Connery that reminds you of Elvis, like his facial structure and his hair. Not like he has a pompadour or anything, but there's something about Sean Connery that if you put him next to Elvis, like... Do that. Like, Google search, like, put those pictures together, just thinking about it and going, there is something about Sean that reminds you of a 1950s, like, like greaser. That's, like, what women thought was really attractive back then. But by the time you get to, like, the 70s, when you're in the Roger Moore era, I think people were more interested in Roger because he had almost, like, an anti-establishment hippie quality. Like, he kind of, he looks like, he looks more like somebody you would watch in a 70s TV show. Like, like I, I'm trying to find an. I can't think of an example just off the top of my head. I mean, it would be stupid if I said the Persuaders because Roger Moore isn't the Persuaders. But it, like, you know, something about Roger Moore feels like the '70s. Like some guy who would come around and be like, "Those polyester suits again," you know? Yeah, with the with the shoulder pads. Yeah. There's something about that <laughs> that elbow. fits Roger. But Sean feels more like an Elvis. It just he just does. I don't know why. So, this is the song that was probably never put into an Elvis movie, but Elvis was going to go ahead and did his own title and everything. This is Edge of Reality.
echo Laughing with mockery The borderline of doom I'm facing The edge of reality Not real that I am condemned to the edge of reality. She's not real, then I am condemned to the edge of reality. Not exactly your two-minute, ten-second hit single record or anything, <laughs> but I think that would have been a Bond. I think that's probably his like attempt to be like, well, this is what you could have had. It, it, it did go a hundred number one hundred and twelve on the top two hundred charts back oh, okay. then. That's fascinating. 68. Yeah, it could have worked for a Bond song. Maybe that was his way of trying to get Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman to say, "Hey, look at me! I can write a Bond song." For yeah, you. it's it's interesting because, and it just made me think Anne Margaret would have been a good Bond girl. Now that I think about it, but it's like. It's, it's interesting because, as we talked about before, there had been other attempts to try to make, uh, like, people like, were on a roulette wheel, and they were trying to get their Bond song in. Kind of like Alice Cooper wrote The Man with the Golden Gun, but then Lulu beat him to do The Man with the Golden Gun. That has happened before. I don't know if that's what happened with Elvis, uh, but it's an interesting thing to think about, especially considering if he watched The Only Live Twice and was inspri inspired by the Nancy Sinatra song to write that. You know, it's that's yeah. an interesting tr trigger of 
like a domino effect of events, you know. It's 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 as I said, they always put out the soundtrack album and then like maybe two weeks later they put out the second album called Music From and Inspired by Da Da Whatever. Right, right. Whatever. It's kinda like Secret Agent Man, you know, that's a very popular sixties song. Never was an official Bond song, but clearly it was written because of Bond. It's yeah. it's like one of those things. It's a tribute song devoted to pop culture. Which is a kind of an interesting thing of thing to think about. It's kind of like Bill Murray singing Star Wars and adding lyrics to it. You're like, I love Star Wars. I'm going to add lyrics to this song you, now. You talk about the Saturday Night Live skit where he yes, says, yes. Yeah, I said yeah. that only because my dad loves that so much. My dad's a big Bill Murray fan. That popped up. All right, so you got three more little Easter eggs here for us. What's the little, first one? Little Easter eggs that are are, are humorous. So. This was something my friend Matt Sherman, who I mentioned, uh, he has his own podcast, and I can le- have a link to that too. Get but he he basically uh, has a number of books, and most of them are like trivia books devoted to Bond. But there's this really weird anomaly that's on his Amazon like wish list almost. If you look up Matt Sherman, M A T T Sherman, like Sherman's Planet and Star Trek, and you look up, you'll find this book called. The Secrets of Cone Power Revealed. Bless your hearts. Now, for anybody (laughs) who has seen the second Timothy Dalton James Bond movie, License to Kill, they know that Wayne Newton, of all people, there's a singer for you, uh, played a con man in that movie named Joe Butcher. And he's this con man that is like, he's pretending he's like in a religious cult, but he's just taking everybody's money and he's funneling it into the main villain's drug scheme. So basically, he had this book... And they show it as a prompt in the movie, and it's that exact same triangle with, like, a a woman in a bikini and meditating. And I asked myself, like, wait a minute, when I saw this, Matt, what is this? Because everybody knows who knows that movie knows that that's fake, but you have an actual book (laughs) with your name on it and the fake name of Wayne Newton's character, Joe Butcher, on it. So what's in it? And he basically said, well, it's mostly a prop book for fans to just amuse each other. There's, like... There's like filler in it, so he wasn't really that uh, he wasn't really that uh, clear about it when I asked him. Maybe he will bring the book when I go on the cruise. But he's it's it's you can buy it for twenty nine ninety nine. That's pretty hefty price for a prop. I imagine it being one of those like holiday books that you would see in the novelty store that says for for, for men it would be. Oh, the secrets of everything you want to know to women. <laughs> and then for, for the women, there would be a, a, another book that would, that would be the title, The Secrets of Everything You Wanted to Know What Make Men Think and Tick, you know. And then you open them up and they're both blank. Yeah, It's yeah. basically a book for a journal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a thing in my wallet that is a card, and it's one of my favorite cards. And the card says, Intentionally Blank. It's one of my favorite things. It's kind of like, oh, you want to see my card? It's like, what? It's a you good know, post for some social media. No, no, it's it's one of my favorite troll cards of yeah. all time. All right, so we're gonna put that link, not without my not with my file, but I'll put that in the in the, in the title as well. Yeah, for sure. All right, what's this next interesting? Okay, story? a little bit more serious, and this is actually really cool because uh, I recently bought the DVD off of eBay. Uh, you can find it on eBay, and I think you could still find it on Amazon. Uh, but. Um, there was an attempt back in 1983, it's a very weird year for Bond, but an awesome year, because in that year, three Bond actors were in three separate Bond-related projects. So Roger Moore was officially Bond in 1983, and they did Octopussy, and that is really the name of the movie. It's the it's based on a short story by Ian Fleming called Octopussy, so, and they explain why they that name's in the movie, too. So they try to motivate and justify it and everything. So anyway, there was that movie. There was a little bit of a strange legal battle because 
One of the other guys who had the rights to Bond was a guy named Kevin McClory, who was kind of a big thorn in Cubby Broccoli's side, even though he was the co-producer of Thunderball. And the reason why was because the novel Thunderball was originally based on a script. Ian Fleming was, was involved with Kevin McClory trying to make the very first Bond screenplay. And it was called, you know, it was eventually called Thunderball. It was. It had a weirder name originally, like uh, Latitude seventy eight uh, West or something. So basically, uh, it became this novel called Thunderball. But McClory sued him along with Jack Winningham, saying, "Hey, you can't take our screenplay and make it into a novel. That's not cool." So he had to get co writing credit. The judge awarded him co writing credit. So when they made Thunderball, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, the full time producers of the Bond series, they had the rest of the novels. Basically said. Okay, we'll make Thunderball with you. So they made Thunderball. Years later, Kevin McClory says, I'm going to remake the Thunderball novel. So I'm going to make another Thunderball story based off the material that we didn't use. So he was legally able to make Never Say Never Again, which starred Sean Connery. So they had like this two Bonds for the price of one thing going on in 1983. <laughs> so two Bond movies came out in the same year and it was perfectly legal. It was very strange. So they just had to work it out among the courts. But then the third thing that was weird was that they decided MGM had the rights to the Man from Uncle show with with uh, Robert Vaughn. So basically, they said, "Hey, let's make a movie." So they decided to help with the publicity. Why don't we get George Lazenby to play James Bond and have him make a cameo in one action sequence, <laughs> which was okay. So it was like, all right, let's do this. George Lazenby isn't doing anything else. He's And he's my friend. He's talked about this. Uh, George has talked about this with me. So it's just kind of like, okay, let's get George a second chance to play Bond because he only did one film, and we'll put him in a white dinner jacket, put him in Aston Martin, and we'll help, have him help Napoleon solo a little bit. It's Napoleon's mission. It's it's Napoleon's story. But it's kind of like a little bit of like a, like a, crutch, a crutch a little bit, like, oh, let's help him out a little bit with a little bit of Bond, and then Bond will disappear. He's only in this one action sequence during uh, uh, in Las Vegas, which also Bond was in already in Diamonds Are Forever. So it's kind of like, well, Bond's still hanging around in Las Vegas kind of joke. So to queue, when we're going to put this link in the video, what should they queue it up to? Nine seconds here? Uh, no, they can queue it up right at zero because the, the way this okay, is let's, edited let's put it is at zero. It, the way this is edited is right when you see the ASMR. All right, so let's let's, let's play it and there's dialogue and then you can describe it, okay? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so that, I mean, that's, what, three, almost three and a half minutes? That is so cool. That is yeah, so no, cool. it's an action sequence. It's kind of like an obscure part of trivia in many ways. It's yeah. like, it's almost like the first attempt at a cinematic universe, like long before Marvel. And, you know, of course, the, the monster movies of uh, Universal was really what people considered the first cinematic universe, technically, because yeah. of, like, Abbott and Costello meet the mummy. But it's more like this is the attempt for MGM to put Bond and Napoleon Solo in the same movie. But it didn't really go anywhere, unfortunately. But it's so, it's kind of like people take for granted all the Marvel stuff, like, oh, Captain America's in the Avengers, and, you know, we have Iron Man teaming up, and, you know, the fans are going, where's Wolverine? Well, I'm sorry, because Wolverine's 20th Century Fox, and then Disney buys 20th Century yeah. Fox. So now Wolverine can be in the Avengers eventually. But going further back... Bond did help Napoleon Solo on his mission once upon a time in 1983. Like a uh, post-credit thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just kind of like, you know, a little bit of a wink, you know, a little wink yeah. to the audience sort of thing. It's exactly that. All right, so let's get this indigestion next one started. <laughs> <laughs> We're going, going right, heartburn. Into, right into the heartburn, right into the colonoscopy. Set this up for us, because this, this is... This is 
this is campy. This is like Partridge Family going on. Okay, here. this I'm I'm a little a little too young for this piece of trivia. Everything we've talked about before is, of course, before I was born. But this is something that was around when I was alive. But I'm this is considered one of the pieces of Bond trivia that everybody wants to forget because it was like a mistake. You know, it's not part of the canon at all now. Like it might have been officially once upon a time in the 90s, but this was the attempt to try to branch off into getting the kids involved more into Bond, which is weird because kids like James Bond anyway. Yeah, so my gadgets, you know, think it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I was a kid, grew up on Bond. My parents loved Bond, so why not, you know? But it was like, this was an attempt in the 90s. This is like 1991. And they even had Richard Maybaum, one of their full-time screenwriters, uh, like one of their uh, big story editors, involved in this a little bit. It was like his last project, which is kind of embarrassing because then he died in 91. Oh. But it's this is like the, the kind of thing you wish you never saw. <laughs> it's like, why did I watch this? Why is this here? So, you know, buyer beware. I'm already feeling it's like the uh, Star Trek animated series, which was yes. actually good because they had voices. But it, you know, there's also the Gilligan's Island animation when outer space. It's the, go roll it. No, man. it's true because even Gene Roddenberry doesn't consider Star Trek the animated series canon anymore. Yeah, it was it was like we're doing this because we can't make the Star Trek show. This is kind of like the MGM is in the middle of bankruptcy after License to Kill and before Goldeneye. We came up with this as a substitute teacher, and it sucked. <laughs> James Bond Jr. No one can stop him, but scum always tries. Young Bond cuts through each web of spies. He learned the game from his uncle James. Now he's heir to the name James Bond. James Bond Jr. Look out, he's coming through. He's got a job to do while he rescues the girl. Around the world. What was of, that? Yeah. A lot of gadgets, a lot of toys, a lot of... I can see what you're... If you're six years old, that could be an attraction for you. Yeah, well, maybe when you're two and you don't know what you're watching, you're just yeah. looking at pretty colors. That's what that feels like. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know what this is, but I like it. You know, it's... it's yeah. yeah, it's kind of like that. It's, it's so bad because... There was an on-job action figure, and he wore, like, a purple jumpsuit, like something you would have exercised in. And it's very weird, because you're like, why is on-job dressed like that? Because in Goldfinger, he was always wearing a suit. So now when you put him in, like, a purple, like, exercise attire, you're like, what is going on? But why is he wearing a hat? He's still wearing a, you know, a, a bowler hat. It doesn't make any sense. So, and there was a villain named Captain Plank, meaning he was, like, a pirate, it was very weird, and the and the guy in the cartoon series, he had like a, he had like a metal head, like his forehead was like a metal head. His name was like Skullcap or something. It was really bad. Oh, it was so weird universe. It going was so on nonsensical. There. <laughs> but he still had some of the old school Bond villains, like Doctor No and Goldfinger. But Doctor No looked like Fu Manchu. Like they went backwards in time and made him more racist, which was very weird. Because Doctor No is one of those villains that people could kind of argue was very dated and they shouldn't have done it. Because he was an evil scientist who was like mixed yeah. Asian. I personally, as a mixed Asian of Filipino descent, uh, I'm half Filipino, isn't really that bothered by Doctor No. Because Doctor No is supposed to be like half Chinese, like half German. But it's just kind of like, you know, 
making him more Fu Manchu looking, more Emperor Ming, is more offensive. I don't know why they did that for this cartoon. It doesn't make any sense. I think how, it was many, also, how many episodes did they make? Oh, I, I think it was only on for like one season. I'd have to look it up. Let's it, look it up real it quick. It wasn't very successful. I'm sure you could find it on IMDb. But it doesn't have a very high rating. It's just one of those like weird anomalies in the James Bond history. It's kind of embarrassing that I have to bring it up, even so. But yeah, you can see it's Michael G. Wilson is one of the producers. So sixty-five episodes. Yeah, one season. Yeah, one season. It not as much as the first season of Star Trek, but you know it's ninety-one uh, to ninety-two. But uh, not yeah, bad, though not it, bad. It, United Artists distributed it, and it's just like you know, and and Maybaum, Richard Maybaum did work a little bit on it, unspecified. We don't know what he did. So when do you get back? Um, I will be back, uh, officially I will be back sometime early November. Okay, let us know, and then we will do the next podcast. Yeah, for sure. I'm always here. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not stuck in your room. Like, he doesn't keep me in the, he doesn't trap, <laughs> he doesn't trap me in the basement or anything like that. But, you know, I'm, I'm around when he needs me to be. So, I'm gonna plug it. How, did you listen to the podcast I did with the artificial intelligence? Uh, only listen to a little bit. Officially, the last thing I listened to was the full podcast that Junie... George Maddox the third did okay I did read I did listen to that because our friend passed away and it was very nice for us to listen to uh, that and he Wayne here played it at his memorial and his younger brother David was very appreciative that that existed so thank you thank you very much Wayne you're, you're a good welcome man. you're welcome you're a good man I really loved that I want to show you just how alive this artificial intelligence is coming and the conversation we have because I, I went ahead and did an hour-long podcast. I call, her, I call it the ro my robot. My robot. Yeah, yeah. No, it fits. Because yeah. in, in Tomorrow Never Dies, James Bond talks to his car. Not like Kit, but like yeah. he talks to a female like Siri in the car that's telling him where to go. Well, just just listen to this, okay? I'm, I'm going to go past the music to where we first. I'm just going to play the little promotion within the promotion here. Mm -hmm. So based on that moving... That's really cool. I hope to be able to hear some of them. And uh, I'm not doing this podcast alone. Joining me is Artificial Intelligence. Oh, I see. You're excited to get started with this podcast, aren't you, New? I'm very excited. Good. Okay, so your name is New, spelled N-U. Is that right? Oh, yeah. My name's New. And you're the co-host of the Carlo Driggs Voodoo Dance Party Podcast, correct? Yeah, that's right. All right, so why don't you explain to the listeners first what is artificial intelligence? Tell us what artificial intelligence is, please, before we start the music. A good music visualizer, either built in or as a plug-in. Okay, well, that works, too. I guess that's what you are, all right? So our first song is going to be the demo, which the fans have been wanting to hear. I know I posted it a little bit on the Facebook uh, Raider Rooter uh website and that is the demo can't wait to hear this i know you can't i know it's basically the demo for dancing in the city which was on the later raider albums in the 1990s so let's play the first one and we're going to jump around on the tracks of these and then we also got doug peterson's louis go home segment coming in but yeah it she just <laughs> it's like it makes me think of robin quivers and uh howard stern howard stern yeah yeah she would always be just come in and whatever. Well, she's one of the perfect co-hosts of that show. I I I would say arguably I did grow up a little bit on Howard Stern because I used to start watching his show on like MTV late because it would be on no not MTV VH1 it would on be on that very late and I would just kind of watch something that was like something you weren't okay. supposed to watch. I forgot. But Robin is very very quick. I forgot we're recording a podcast. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, so there you go. Listen. 
while you're gone, I'm going to continue doing the solo ones with new, which is a real artificial intelligence coming to life, and we will do the podcast. Anything else you want to say? Um, wish me luck and uh, safe voyage ahead on the cruise. You know, it's going to be really fun going through the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean Sea because I hadn't ever done that in my life. And uh, the only other country I've visited to thus far was Canada on the, 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 the pretty side of Niagara Falls. So oh. I'm going to be able to visit Bahamas, and that will be finally my second foreign country. Well, hum the Gilligan's Island theme song while you're bored. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll do that and somehow do a remix of Gilligan's Island and James Bond. Okay. I'll do it on my laptop. <laughs>